0: Father, we long this morning that you would speak to us into our lives, the situations that we're going through, the things causing us anxiety, the things causing us joy. Would you open our ears and soften our hearts that we might hear what you are saying? Thank you that you're a God who loves to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, fr- Friday night, just gone. If you turned up at the church building um, from about half seven onwards, we have our monthly film club, a club called Real Life. One of the things I love about it um, is that after watching a film, people generally are pretty happy to talk about the film, to talk about ideas and concepts, that the truths being expounded within that film, whether they agree, whether they disagree of well, the topics and ideas, and film is a brilliant way of engaging with the reality of life, the big questions of life. And so as we begin this morning, I want you to think about this film. Someone tell me? Thank you, the Bourne Trilogy. A um, bit of the background, if you don't know it, which I didn't until recently, but it was based on books written in the 80s. It's now a very popular trilogy. There are spin offs and likely to be other films as well within the actual trilogy, which then becomes something else. Um, regarded by most as, as good films, some as, as almost redefining, redefining the genre, kind of spy films. It's so popular, in fact, it seems that there are perpetual reruns on some of the more obscure channels about halfway down our list at home, again and again and again. If you're not familiar with them, I apologise, and I apologise as well, because there'll be some spoilers. The story begins with Jason Bourne, we find out later his name, but Matt Damon, if you recognise him, um, floating as if dead in the Mediterranean Sea. He has a completely blank slate, it seems. He, he's seemingly been shot, he's chipped with an ID number in his hip, he's rescued by fishermen, but he remembers very little about who he is. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know where he's come from. He doesn't know why he seems to have all these incredible ninja skills, ability to speak all kinds of languages, to cause all kinds of damage, but he doesn't know who he is. One of my favorite interchanges in the first film, the conversation he's having with a lady called Marie that he ends up traveling with for a bit. And he's just found these things, and so he asks her this. He says, who has... A safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun. Who has a bank account number in their hip? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sight lines and I'm looking for an exit. I can tell you the license plate numbers of the six cars outside. I can tell you the waitress is left handed, and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the grey truck outside, and at this altitude, I can run flat out for half a mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How could I know that? And not know who I am? That is the big question of the first installment. Who am I? He asks. And then, alongside that, a very close second is who are my enemies? Why are these gangs, why are the CIA trying to kill me? And the question of identity tumbles out again and again. It's in all kinds of films, to be fair. But in this one, I think it's particularly skillfully done. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Where have I come from? Maybe you can see why it's such a useful tool for a confused humanity who have walked out on God. A chance to ask the big questions of life. Who are we? What are we here for? What are we doing here? Where are we going? Are we just accidents? Does life actually have any meaning at all? And then maybe asking some of the challenges as well, the questions of well, who or what stops us from being who we were made to be and doing what we were made to do. Key questions for anybody, for all of us sat here this morning, key questions for Christians too, particularly Christians in the Philippian church, it seems. You see, if you get those questions wrong, Paul says, if if we're not clear on, number one, our identity and purpose and who we are, and number two, what the challenges are to us being those things, then we will be in all kinds of trouble. So in our section for this morning in Paul's letter to Philippi, he longs for them. Do you see in 4 verse 1, that seems to be something of the climax of where he's going. He says, stand firm. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I long and love, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. It's particularly particularly personal, passionate pleas from Paul. And this idea of standing firm, I think we get in kind of microcosm what we've seen in the whole letter in weeks gone by. Do you remember in the midst of the mess, Paul says, Paul says, watch me, follow me, live as I live, do as I do, as I follow Christ. Just as Paul is willing and able to suffer joyfully and in a godly way, despite opposition, despite prisons, despite hardships, well, so he wants that for the Philippians. Follow me. Despite what you're going through, church in Philippi, joyfully be prepared to suffer. Put on your joy spectacles. See see the world in what Christ has done and in what he is doing. And when you do that, then some of the little things feel much smaller. Paul wants them to follow him. And in the midst of these external hardships, we've seen there seems to be this splintering within. As the world crushes in on this church, there seems to be some division. There's a lot of emphasis in Philippi on unity, on standing together and being firm, on not being divided. He says, live out your being united with Christness corporately. You're united to him, so be united to one another. Have a Jesus and then others first mindset. Live that reality out day by day. And of course, friends, our problem is we're forgetful, aren't we? Isn't that what it comes down to in this tangible world? We're forgetful. We're easily like, like Jason Bourne. We don't know who we are anymore. We, we don't know what we're here for. We, we forget who we are in Christ. It, it doesn't trickle down into the everyday. We get buffeted this way and that. We believe what the world says. Maybe especially when life is hard, we forget who we are. And so how are we going to stand firm? That seems to be what Paul wants, I think, from these verses. How are we going to stand firm? Well, 4 verse 1, sorry, 320 to 21. He longs for us to be clear on our identity. Know who you are, says Paul. That is where we begin. That seems to be at the heart of the verses that we have for this morning. Philippian Christians, Magdlum Road Christians, guests and visitors, know who you are. Know where you come from. Know where you're going. As Christians, if that would be how you would call yourself this morning, we know who we are. So have a look at verse 20 with me. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You might have been a Christian for five minutes. You may have been a Christian for 105 years, but the bottom line Paul says to you and to me is if you if you look at your passports. If you look at your passport, you'll see where you come from. Because it says you are a citizen of heaven. That is who you are. And we've touched on it before, but the citizen word that Paul uses is very deliberate. It's a loaded word for, for people living in Philippi. Do you remember Philippi was a Roman colony? So physically, it was in Greece rather than Italy, but socially or legally, the inhabitants were Romans. Many of them or their parents or their grandparents had been shipped um, to Philippi. They were Roman military veterans. They arrived decades before. So, so you, you lived in Philippi, but you considered yourself to be a Roman. It was a town full of people who were living there, but from elsewhere. They were living in a town that was not their home, surrounded by people who were like them, but, but not like them. Inhabitants of Philippi, citizens of Rome. And so do you see why he uses that word? Christians in Philippi, you might live here, but you belong somewhere else. This this is your home, but it's not your home, really. Your passports, they say, they say citizens of heaven. That is where you belong. That changes your perspective on life. That changes your perspective on everything. You remember, if you're a um, a regular here, you will know that I was privileged to spend a couple of weeks at the end of October in America. Um, It was a sort of conference, community learning environment thing. There were 16 of us from all over the world. Um, I mentioned it briefly last week. I want to tell you about one person in particular this week. I have to say I have permission to tell you this. Um, She's a long way away. But as a lady who, one of the things we did in the first couple of days was basically share our testimony. We had maybe 10 minutes to share a bit about who we were. Not what we did, but who we were. What the Lord had done in us. Perhaps how we had become Christians or those kinds of things. And she began her testimony like this. She said, basically, she said, I am the product of adultery. I am illegitimate, she said. She went on to explain her a very complicated and difficult family situation. She was an outcome of an affair within a church. And you could have heard a pin drop. A bit like now. But What struck me, though, about her incredible woman was the maturity that she had in Christ. She knew who she was. She had this amazing grasp of her identity. Of course, she could have had all kinds of questions, all kinds of issues, all kinds of things going on when she found out about her, her background, her parents. But she knew whom she belonged to. She knew who she was, and that mattered far, far more. Do you see who, who being a citizen of heaven revolves around? Have a look down. If you are a citizen of heaven, If that is where you belong, look whom you belong to, you belong to Christ. He is the true, powerful king, so powerful, verse 21. In fact, he is in control of everything. But also, secondly, we're a people with a future because we have a hope, because we're waiting for our saviour from heaven, who will transform our broken and ailing and decaying bodies. We're a people who have a hope because we think the grave is not the farthest perspective that you can have. Because this world is not all there is. It's not not escapist daydreaming. It's based on, do you see, his transformed body because we're thinking about the resurrection. He, he was raised again, he will come again, says Paul. Christians, you have a hope. Be clear on your identity. I wonder, did you ever stop and consider the reality of Jesus coming back? I think it can often seem very far away from life, can't it? It can often seem very far away from reality. Maybe this weekend, as we've watched the news, there's been something of a longing in us for peace, for something more, for evil to be done away with forever, for hatred, for murder. But I wonder if Jesus coming back, if our transformed bodies in him ought to be something we, we meditate on more, we, we let it soak in more, that this world is not all there is, perhaps ought to affect us more. One writer puts it like this, I thought very helpfully, he says, he, he will rescue us from the toxic byproducts of our own and other people's rebellion. When he comes back from heaven, he is going to raise our sin-stained, suffering-scarred bodies from the dead. As he emerged triumphant from the grave on the third day with a real material body that could never ever again be harmed by pain or disease or death, so our Savior will give us glorious bodies like this. No more muscle aches, broken bones, arthritis, memory loss indigestion heart disease or cancer he continues like this best of all no more appetites bent in on themselves in guilty self-indulgence rather we'll have a body wired to desire what our creator designed us for what he is pleased to give us and what he is pleased to see us enjoy through and through forever and ever You see, friends, your passport says you are a citizen of heaven. You're one of those waiting for Jesus to come back. This world is not all there is. There, There it will be. There is a future that will be for us. And when we know who we are, and when we know where we're going, and when those things begin to trickle down into life, into normal stuff then life gets clearer but easily we're like Jason Bourne we're confused and we're disorientated and we're forgetful and the world constantly screams at us take me seriously everything in us wants to listen everything in us wants to be a citizen of heaven to put down permanent roots here, to dance the dance like everybody else, to find our worth and our identity and what we see around us and what we can touch and taste and smell, the things that promise us permanence and value, the things that say you belong here. But, and it's hard to remember, it can be really hard, but we're, we're citizens from somewhere else, from another place. If you're aware of these kinds of things there's a movement at the moment amongst a number of churches good churches and it's of the idea of of really emphasizing doing good blessing cities getting to know your neighbors becoming part of the furniture being in the world putting down roots opening the doors perhaps and I think those things are all good maybe in years gone by Christians haven't done a great job of doing that but I think we need to be careful that the pendulum doesn't swing too far the other way. We need to remember that we're to be in the world, but, but not of the world. Because we're, we're citizens from elsewhere. So put down roots and love and bless and open doors and get stuck in, but, but remember who you are. Remember where you belong. Remember what your future holds when Jesus comes back. Should we do good? Of course we should. But take care that we remember who we are. It's all right to never feel quite at home. It's all right to never quite feel that we belong here. That's to be expected. Now, one of the reasons Paul gives, it seems, as you look at the verses, for for wanting us to be so clear on our identity, verse 20 and 21... It's because he puts them in stark contrast to some opposition that seems to be there in Philippi, some challenges. It seems these people were very much like citizens of Philippi. Paul says it's vital to be clear on your challenges. So have a look down at verse 17 to 19, first of all. Following Jesus is hard, and so to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Let me read from verse 18. For as I've told you before and now tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. So do you see the first round of challenges that he outlines? To be frank, there are different thoughts as to who these people are in verse 17 to 19. There are strong cases from various sides. Some think it's, do you remember the Judaizers from last week? Legalists who were doing the Jesus plus thing. Jesus plus circumcision. And you can see legalism appeals to our flesh, to earning stuff, to appetites, to keeping laws, to earning righteousness, to ticking boxes, to notching up enough reward points. It's a a worldly religion mindset it's about flesh. And so maybe he's talking again about those guys. I think that works. But I also think there's a new group that Paul is outlining here. Not struggling with legalism, but struggling with license. Struggling with the fact that they have freedom in Christ and so they abuse it. Maybe they say, Well, well, listen, God is bound to forgive you, isn't he? That's what he's like, that's his job, that's what he does. You can use your freedom for fun, to do what you want to do. You have this get-out-of-jail-free card from God, now go use it. What does it matter, maybe they say. So they p- peddle this life of lawless indulgence, physical pleasure, a world that ruled by bodily appetite, serving self. They peddle that and they promise, God won't mind He'll let you, it's fine. You have freedom in Christ. Go live as you want. What does Paul say to that? Verse 19. What well, do you notice it's that mind word again? We've had mind a few times. Do you remember in, as we've gone through Philippians, it's been a key word. It's back in chapter two, be of one mind. Or chapter two again, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Here, here it's about a mind, though, set on Earthly things. God does care about how we live, how we use the freedom in Christ that we have. And so Paul urges them, think about where your mind is. Can I ask you a question if you're a Christian here this morning? My question for you is, what do you think about? Where, where is your mind? I think it's an important question. It's a, it seems to say that we need to be disciplined in how we think, not to just be a people of appetite who allow ourselves to indulge unhelpful thoughts, thought patterns. Are our minds simply set on earthly things? Maybe, again, a good question for us in home groups to chew over, to pray for each other. And I'm aware that life is busy and I'm aware that our weeks are full and we have full diaries and we have people to hang out with, we have houses to buy, we have jobs to do, we have washing up. T- but how do we keep our minds in the midst of those things? How do we remember we're a citizen of heaven rather than having an earthly mindset? If the world is an accident, if we're just here by chance, if it's just a fluke, if, if your perspective is that the grave is the end and that is it, if that is the farthest horizon you can see, then please, by all means, live for the now. Squeeze all you can out of the now. Fill your, your days and your weeks and your months and your years with as much good stuff as you can, as much meaning, as much worth for now, because, because time is short because next week might be that phone call. As the test results come back, I heard this morning of somebody in their mid-thirties just keeling over and dying on Saturday morning. Seemed very healthy, seemed fine. But you see, we don't know how long we have, so if your citizenship is on earth, if that's who you are, if your mind is on earthly things, then cram all you can in. But Christians, our citizenship is not on earth. It is in heaven. And yet ours really is an era that can be described by verse 19. An era where appetite rules. The the sea we swim in, the air we breathe so often and so easily is about me and what I want now. Just this last week, Wednesday, the 11th of November. Some of you will know we saw the world's biggest online shopping day ever. Okay, It's not Black Friday. That's the first Friday after American Thanksgiving, start of the Christmas shopping season, apparently. Cyber Monday, again, the first Monday after Thanksgiving. It's November the 11th. That is the biggest online shopping day. Why? Because it's the Singles Day in China. Article I read said this it was a manufactured holiday beginning in the mid 90s as a kind of anti Valentine's Day for singles to spoil themselves. Now, I suspect that is something of a, a sad byproduct of the awful one child policy in China. But the article continued it has since ballooned into such an orgy of consumption that online sales make Black Friday and Cyber Monday pale by comparison. And the results seem to show it was the busiest shopping day ever online. 14 billion US dollars. I don't think I'm being unfair, but at least at least Cyber Monday and Black Friday, as far as I can see, they're often to do with buying pe- things for other people. They're getting ready for Christmas. Singles Day seems to be shamelessly about self, about spoiling self, about appetites. And when that appetite-driven mentality seeps into church, it creates all kinds of problems. The whole perspective of the people of God gets skewed. God is there simply now to serve me and do what I want and serve me. And we become consumers. Now, to be fair, if you read it carefully in Philippi, I don't know if it's there yet. Paul says, many which may not mean that that is within the church. He'll say similar things in Corinth, and he'll address that to some of you. Here it seems to be a teaching that might be on the fringes of the church, threatening the church in Philippi, but not in yet. Whatever it is, though, Paul does seem to be genuinely moved by their destiny, by the outcome of these people. Last week with the Judaizers, frankly, he was angry. The things that people trust in rather than Christ, he was angry with them. Here there seems to be a sadness, a genuine tenderness for them. People who have missed the point. So first challenge, verse 18 to 19 in Philippi, is this awareness of a lifestyle that doesn't match up to the reality of the calling they have. They, They follow their appetites, they do what they want to do, because they think God is bound to forgive them. But their destiny is destruction, verse 19. It must cause us to ask the kind of blind spot questions. The Western ways of living as Western Christians that don't match up to the reality of what it means to follow Christ. Has the Western world seeped into the Western church? Are there things that we're happily filling our lives with that we ought not fill our lives with? Are there appetites that we're happily feeding that really we shouldn't? That seems to be the first challenge. The second one, though, the second one is at the start of chapter 4. So do you see he says, stand firm, for verse 1. But that's not just individually standing firm, that's together standing firm. Not just you and God, but standing firm as us and God. And so here's the second challenge, verse 2, internal division. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life, wouldn't you love to know who they were? What had happened to Euodia and Syntyche? Why this bust-up? I think it's striking that Paul publicly names these prominent women. So I have a list here of people in this room who I think need to reconcile. I don't, but can you imagine? Can you imagine? Presumably it was a public bust-up and so he publicly names them. But can you imagine the scene as Paul is reading through the letter to the church in Philippi and, and suddenly the room gets very warm. And there's Euodia over there and Syntyche over there and they both look red and flushed and awkward. And he urges them, ladies, agree in the Lord. I guess it's a smart way of saying it's not just the two of you. No, you're, you're together, you're in the Lord's. And then he pulls Clement in as well, I think, who seems to be there to sort things out if needed. He says, you're not just together in the Lord. No, verse 3, you're in the Lamb's book of life. You Euodia and Syntyche, remember who you are. Uh, act accordingly. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know the public falling out. We don't know how much of a schism it's caused. We, we're just listening to one side of the argument, but whatever... Paul says, be reconciled, be of the same mind. Again. Now I said before uh, from the front that I think at Maudham Road we have a remarkable, God-given, precious, humbling unity amongst us. In many ways we're a diverse community, but in a very many ways. We are unified. It's not been an easy few years. There have been all kinds of changes, all kinds of uncertainties, all kinds of things that, have, that we're still waiting on. We put a, in a bid for a building last week. You've worked through changes in leadership, changes in people. I think nearly half of you arrived less than three years ago, which is extraordinary. But the Lord does seem to have have graciously kept us together, maintained us as one body, growing us even together as one. And I don't know of any significant fallings out, and I'm not sure I would read names out from the front anyway. But listen up and take this seriously. If there are things that need to be resolved, if there are people in the Lord that you need to reconcile with, Please take that seriously. Please, particularly if there are people in this room, be brave. Maybe over coffee. Maybe this week, write a letter. Because these things can fester and grow and pollute and divide churches. The problem is, in our day, we can just ignore, we can avoid, we can unfollow people who annoy us that is the really easy option. Bottom line is Satan loves to divide churches. He loves to get in among Christians. He loves to divide and undo and break apart what Christ has brought together as one. And so if there are cracks and factions, please take time to prayerfully, humbly deal with them. Be, be reconciled, be of the same mind together. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And we stand firm because we are clear on our identity. We know who we are. We know we are citizens of heaven, but inhabitants of the earth. We're waiting to be reconciled to Christ. We're waiting for glorious bodies that won't decay. But stand firm too because we know the challenges that we have. We, we're aware of worldly appetites and self and the me, me, me way of thinking. And we're aware of divisions and factions within the people of God. So stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would cause us corporately together to stand firm, that we might be aware of who we are, increasingly our identity. Please, would it influence our daily lives? Would it trickle down into the nooks and crannies of our normal week? Help us to remember we are citizens of heaven, waiting for Christ to return. And our life here, in a sense, is temporary, Help us, please, to, to not have our mind set on earthly things. Would you cause us to know what that means for us in the situations and contexts and relationships into which you've called us? And please, as well, would you, would you cause us to be reconciled and united? Thank you for the glorious work of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the unity that we enjoy and we share here. But would, would you protect that? And if we need to be brave and reconcile, would you help us to do that? In your son's name we pray for his glory. Amen. Do stand and let us sing of our future with Christ. Our Father in heaven, we do look forward to that time when we will see you face to face. And until then, we pray that you would help us to remember our identity, that we are a citizen of heaven. And we pray that you would guard us from the challenges of forgetting that. While we keep our eyes fixed on Christ this week, in his precious name we pray. Amen.